Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Critical Theory. I'm your host, Dr. David O'Brien from Goldsmiths College, University of London. On this episode, we're discussing Comedy and Distinction, the Cultural Currency of a Good Sense of Humour by Dr. Sam Friedman, who's from the London School of Economics. Okay, welcome to New Books and Critical Theory. I'm your host, David O'Brien from Goldsmiths, University of London. On this podcast, we'll be talking to Sam Friedman from the London School of Economics about his latest book, which is called Comedy and Distinction. It's published by Routledge. Um, and it's a really fascinating text that seeks to overturn a lot of the assumptions we have about comedy, particularly about people's taste in comedy and what people find funny. So welcome to the podcast, Sam. What I'd like to do to start with is to give listeners a sense of kind of who you are, what you do, and why it is you've ended up writing this uh, book about this particular topic. So, what's your role here at uh, DLSE? Um, well, I'm an assistant professor here in sociology. Um, uh, and in terms of the sort of genesis of this book, um, my background is actually as a magazine publisher and comedy critic at the Edinburgh Festival Fringe, um, where I've run a magazine called Fest for the last uh, decade or so. Um, and so working as a critic, um, I became really fascinated by um, what, made, what makes people laugh um, and the sort of diversity of aesthetic experience um, and reactions of comedy audiences I was seeing at the comedy gigs I was reviewing at the Fringe. Um, and this sort of really piqued an interest in wanting to explore this um, sociologically. Um, comedy has traditionally been seen as very much a lowbrow art form in the UK. Um, but ever since the alternative comedy movement in the early 1980s, it's been sort of significantly rehabilitated to some extent. And um, what you see now at the Edinburgh Fringe is a, a, a really vast field um, with comedians representing all sorts of different styles and approaches to comedy. Uh, and so what I really wanted to interrogate was how these shifts in the production of comedy have uh, been reflected in changing patterns of consumption. And this, uh, I guess, was kind of uh, your PhD thesis then, or was it something um, that you kind of worked on before you started at Edinburgh? Or? No, this was, my, this was very much my, my PhD thesis, yeah. That's interesting, because it, it, it's sort of a... I guess a, an unusual uh, choice for a PhD to do something that overlaps so strongly with, um, I guess what what would be your day job of being kind of cultural critic. Yeah. Um, in um, an area where you're talking about things like social stratification, social class, and you apply a really kind of interesting um, quantitative uh, method to this as well, which I think we might come on uh, to talk about a bit later. So the book opens. Um, with, uh, I guess, a kind of a story about um, insecurity within uh, the British Broadcasting Corporation, the BBC, and how it um, sort of commissions um, and displays comedy. 
Um, and you tell the story of how both this kind of insecurity about what kind of comedy is on British television and who is involved in it um, was reacted to by both kind of uh, practitioners, comedians, uh, people working in, uh, in television, and also critics who seem to suggest that it doesn't matter who is doing uh, comedy. What's funny is just funny. There's something kind of universal about comedy. And I wonder if you could say a bit about that. Um, that kind of position, the idea that stuff that makes you laugh is just funny. Mm, I think it's something that we very much take for granted that um, um, that there is something out there um, called funny, and um, and that everybody recognises what it is. And certainly, what is interesting is that people routinely in the comedy industry um, and comedy critics tend to very much take that for granted and um, sort of take forward the notion that their notion of funny is is shared by everybody else or, interestingly, should be um, followed uh, by everybody else. Um, and I suppose what my work illustrates is actually there's very strong divides in what makes people laugh and what they find funny um, and that these are related very much to um, what Pierre Bourdieu would call cultural capital. Um, and that was really a sort of central uh, part of the book, exploring how um, levels of cultural capital, very briefly just in terms of um, the dispositions that um, people from different social class backgrounds um, are inculcated with in their um, socialisation, um, and how that goes on to... Um, structure the way they um, see culture and in this case comedy and what they're looking for so um, the way I talked about this in the book was sort of styles of comic appreciation um, in more lay terms we would just talk, call that sense of humour yeah, yeah. Um, and what I found was that what people's, people's sense of humour relates very much to their backgrounds that's it, I mean, there's a load of stuff you said that, that um, it'd be really interesting to kind of spend a little time sort of unpacking and, and thinking about um, both um, the kind of the practical implications of the idea that someone's sense of humour might be related to their uh, particular social class or social uh, position, but also um, more theoretically. So I wonder if, if we spend a little bit of time thinking theoretically. Mm. You mentioned Pierre Bourdieu, yes. uh, who is you know, a kind of a crucial influence yes. on this book. But he's also uh, someone that you're sort of writing with, but perhaps writing against as well. I mm -hmm. wonder if you could tell us the role of, of Bourdieu in, in your study. Yeah, well, I suppose I'm uh, strongly influenced by, by his work um, in his sort of seminal book, Distinction. Um, I suppose the, the, the interesting thing here was to think about um, the way in which comedy was implicated in um, the way in which we um, sort of identify uh, cultural distinction um, in the contemporary era, how people communicate their cultural distinction through their taste. Um, now traditionally, and I think the sort of main finding that people tend to pull out from Borgia's work in distinction is that um, we are... Um, 
that cultural capital is very much orientated towards particular valuable cultural objects and through the consumption... Could could you give an example? So, um, traditionally, um, one's consumption of the high arts, um, whether classical music, opera, ballet, even theatre to some extent, um, through the sort of very careful consumption of... Um, and signalling to others of your ability to consume those high arts. This was a sort of pivotal way that one communicated their cultural distinction. Um, And I suppose the sort of key aspects of my work is to challenge the notion that popular culture is um, sort of completely bereft of that objectified cultural capital and that actually in the contemporary era um, particularly for younger generations of those um, who are sort of inculcated with a certain sort of cultural capital from their background that actually popular culture and objects of popular culture are are very important in terms of the signalling of one's cultural distinction but actually moving even further away from Borgia's portrait um, of cultural capital and distinction, um, I suppose the the main sort of uh, argument in the book is that actually um, the signalling of distinction through comedy is less about specific comic objects. There are some valuable comedians that, you know, people like Stuart Lee, if you show or talk about your knowledge and your preferences for Stuart Lee, his legitimacy in the field through is the way in which he's critically acclaimed, etc., um, may be a signal of your of, of, of cultural distinction. But actually, the main way is through uh, a particular sense of humour, the uh, a way of um, sort of outlining your style of comic appreciation. And what's interesting about that um, is that it foregrounds what Bourdieu would say embodied cultural capital. So less about objects and more about the actual um, sort of the way in which we talk and perform um, knowledge about culture. And in this sense, comedy uh, was really quite powerful because it allows people to sort of perform a sense of distinction through discussion of almost any comedian. Um, So most of the comedians I uh, asked respondents about uh, might be seen as crossover. They tend to be liked by different sorts of people but actually the reasons why people like those comedians particularly people like um eddie Izzard, monty python um were very different according to uh, their levels of cultural capital and there was this sense among those with high levels of cultural capital that they could always uh get more they always felt they were able to get more from this sort of humor um and this was a key um, way in which they seem to be sort of um, performing and um, sort of communicating their cultural distinction. I mean, it's very interesting actually because um, something like um, good taste, which is, I guess, um, the thing that animates for you, mm-hmm. the idea of kind of overturning um, the naturalness of having good taste and relating taste to social position, um, something like comedy um, or humour, um, comedy as a field and humour is this kind of embodied um, idea goes one step further because 
Um, it comes through in, in some of the interviews in, in the book, actually, about you know people knowing sort of what to laugh at and not what to laugh at, mm. or you know the idea of. Um, and later on in the book, you know, you talk about critical judgments and, and stuff like this. And I suppose it's it's kind of almost that next step on um, the idea of um, the, the embodied nature. Um, of cultural capital and cultural capital is something that you spend a lot of time thinking about in the book and um, again in this kind of writing with but, but you know perhaps extending board your idea you, you discuss this concept of comic cultural capital mm-hmm. um, and I wonder if you could say what that is and, and sort of uh, where that relates back to this theoretical um, framework yeah I mean I suppose it, 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 it very much relates to, to, to what I was just saying about sort of um, uh, a shift away from, I suppose, seeing um, cultural capital as residing in particular legitimate objects and more as a, um, an embodied capacity that resides in particular types of subjectivities. Um, and in the case of comedy, that is about performing um, a sort of cultivated sense of humour. And it's interesting, you mentioned there this idea of laughter. And laughter was really a sort of key battleground in different styles of appreciation. Um, you have on one side um, a sense um, from people that I was speaking to with lower levels of cultural capital felt quite confident in, um, in, in, in saying to me, well, Laughter is the ultimate currency of comedy. Of course it is. It's the instinctive aspect of what you're looking for from a comedian. You want them to make you laugh, uh, and you want that laughter to be um, something that actually triggers pleasure and is about enjoying oneself and um, you know the, the place of comedy in people's lives was about... Um, it was about relaxation. It was about um, a, a night out. It was sort of linked to um, a sort of sensual reaction. Um, whereas what was really interesting and going against perhaps sort of common sense notions of laughter as a sort of involuntary physiological mechanism, a lot of the people that I spoke to with high levels of cultural capital um, sort of were much more ambivalent about laughter, much more... Um, guarded about the way they uh, deployed laughter um, and that the, the basic point was that um, something had to be more than just funny in order to uh, be seen as quality humour, quality comedy um, and that actually they were quite suspicious of comedy that tried to sort of uh, invoke what one respondent called cheap laughter. Uh, and so I suppose in, to go back to your question it, it, it's really about this idea of um, cultural capital uh, residing in a particular style of aesthetic appreciation which is something that Bourdieu uh, spoke about at some length in, in distinction but I think what's changed perhaps is that in the era that Bourdieu was writing, 1960s France the cultural hierarchy was much more fixed um, and much more separated between these traditional notions of high and low art. And I think that what I'm sort of exploring in the book is comedy as a case study for a, um, a sort of um, a new era in which younger generations of those from culturally privileged backgrounds are very carefully consuming popular culture and are able to buy sort of foregrounding a particular style of appreciation 
um, showing their distinction through their their particular consumption of popular culture. Um, and so I think it's, you know, comedy is both fascinating in and of itself, but it's also potentially a case study here for new forms of cultural distinction in general. Yeah, it's interesting, actually, as, as I was reading through the book and, and taking some notes and all the notes I, I wrote down was that, you know, the kind of... Uh, Comedy really is is almost the kind of a secret vehicle for a book that is as much to do with how society um, is uh, socially stratified or socially divided as it is as much to do with you know what makes people laugh and what is funny and, and this kind of stuff. And and from what you said there, I guess there are two things going on. There is the act of uh, distinction or boundary making um, or, or divisiveness. Uh, in society, but there's also this um, potentially kind of uh, new social individual who doesn't fit into the rigid hierarchies that people like Bourdieu were talking about, but certainly American sociology um, has been really interested in uh, really since the kind of 1980s, 1990s, and this is the idea of of the cultural omnivore, and you touched on that um, earlier when you were talking about, you know, uh, people consuming lots of different things, and in that act of consumption, uh, making themselves distinct. Some of the uh, the literature that you're kind of engaging with sees the omnivore as a, a, as something to be celebrated because it spells the end of class distinctions. That now, you know, because we watch The Simpsons, we go to the opera, um, and we enjoy uh, video games. It means that you know we don't use culture to say you know this particular group is is you know bad or evil or uh, you know is is outside of our particular social class um, but actually you have a lot of issues with that so I wonder if you could yeah. just say a little bit about um, kind of I guess what your problem with the omnibus <laughs> yeah I mean I think this is a sort of massive debate and it's another sort of big um, area in which this book is trying to sort of weigh into a debate which is that you know the comedy, if it is ever included in surveys, is seen as um, a form of of cultural taste that would very much back up, if it was combined with traditional high arts, some notion of this idea of omnivorousness, and then, as you say, very much linked to sort of democratising notions um, that we are um, now increasingly culturally tolerant and we do not draw boundaries on the basis of taste. But I think two things really about what this case study shows. A, you need to go much further than most quantitative surveys go in understanding the precise items within genres that people like. Um, What you know, the quantitative analysis in my study shows is that the field of comedy, you know, liking comedy doesn't really tell you much about a person. You need to know exactly what type of comedy they like in terms of the particular comedians. Um, but even beyond that, there is a li- there's a limitation of looking at objects of taste. Um, and I suppose in terms of the omnivore debate, it's about getting away from the idea of what you like and looking much more at how and why you like what you do. And in there, there is where you tend to find um, the power of cultural capital uh, being able to maintain itself and in some ways potentially more powerful because um, it's sort of by stealth, i.e. it seems like we all like the same things. Um, but actually the mechanisms by which 
cultural distinction is such a powerful uh, social weapon, i.e. in forms of social interaction, as a way of signaling status. It's, it's there that the more embodied forms of cultural capital that are absolutely central to the way we consume popular culture um, are still really, really pertinent because um, we may be able to find, you know, may talk about this notion of the water cooler moment where we can get together and um, talk about, you know, forms of popular culture in, 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 and therefore be united with other social groups. But if you're getting completely different things from those forms of popular culture, um, then it's not going to be a uniting force at all. Um, one other point just to say on this, which I think is also interesting in this terms of the specificity of comedy, what I found in this study, which goes completely against the notions of the omnivore thesis, is that comedy was also very much clearly um, associated with a quite overt form of cultural snobbery. And it seemed that notions of bad taste in comedy um, from some respondents to another um, seemed to be a very powerful marker of sort of um, almost pathological identities on them. You know, that, 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 that people felt that through others liking a particular comedian or laughing at a particular type of joke, um, they could infer very deep-seated aspects of that person's uh, personality. And I think that's really interesting because obviously it goes very much against the notion of tolerance that underpins the omnivore thesis. But in that regard, um, as I say in the book, I think comedy may be somewhat specific in the sense that it's so linked to um, everyday humour and in that regard I think everyday humour um, is both a very powerful marker of uh, social similarity we use uh, shared humour as a sort of foundation ingredient of making friendships and connections with people but it's also a very clear marker of social difference uh, if you cannot share humour with somebody, um, it's often very hard to make a connection with them. So I think perhaps because um, humour is such a powerful maker and breaker of social bonds, um, this explains why comedy as a cultural form so closely linked to humour um, is so powerful or has such a powerful or heightened uh, ability to mark out um, these sorts of social boundaries. The, there's two things that, that come from that. One, I guess, is, is something to do with those specific comedians and the idea of um, genre, which uh, I think we'll come back to. But just for a moment, I want to take up what you've just said there about um, humour as a way of kind of um, getting across or between social groups, because there's a really important social group for, hu for who humour is, um, I guess, quite sort of problematic as part of their identity. And what's interesting here is uh, the indication that um, you have that there seems to be upward forms of uh, what we might think of as social mobility, so maybe people from one class background who've got jobs or education that's taken them into another um, class position, and the way that they will consume uh, what we might think of uh, for some groups as kind of bad taste in comedy and good taste in comedy. 
but this doesn't seem to work the same way for those from more elite backgrounds. They, there doesn't seem to be kind of downward social mobility in terms of their taste. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, th- this is obviously uh, very British examples, but um, those sorts of kind of elite social groups you're interested in don't tend to consume uh, the kind of um, problematic populist comedians uh, that you know maybe uh, are involved in um, particularly kind of difficult, say, racialized discourses mm. or you know class-based comedy mm. and stuff like this, and that sort of core social group that, that comes through in, in the field work you did, these kind of socially mobile people, um, you have a sort of a worry for them that uh, they're not actually omnivores. What they are are potentially culturally homeless. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if you could say a bit about those because I think they're, they're central to illustrating this idea about how the boundaries of, uh, of comedy work. Yeah, absolutely. It's really interesting. As you say, I think... Um, I mean, this was a, this was a social group that emerged in the interviews, um, and was of such interest to me that I tried to follow up and get more interviews with people from that upwardly mobile trajectory because it seemed that, as you say, they were in a really interesting position in terms of development of their sense of humour over time. And um, just to sort of summarise, yeah, these were people who were. Um, from what we would consider working class occupational backgrounds uh, most of them described having very little sort of cultural capital in their backgrounds in terms of um, the the role of culture in their upbringing Um, but they had all been educationally and mainly occupationally successful um, thereafter and described interestingly in terms of sort of life history how um, university attendance or a particular sort of professional milieu had yielded um, new tastes and often new tastes for comedians um, but what was really interesting was how they then um, managed the fact that um, in their working class backgrounds although you know forms of legitimate culture haven't necessarily been particularly prominent. Um, comedy, particularly forms of popular comedy, sitcoms, were a massively important part of, um, of their upbringing in terms of you know, uh, uh, spending time with family and the sort of connections they have with their family. And so what seemed to me was that they had um, established new comedy tastes, to some extent new things um, that they found funny, but didn't hadn't necessarily meant that they dropped um, or completely abandoned the tastes uh, and the things that they found funny from their upbringing. But actually combining those two forms of humour was quite problematic for them uh, in the sense that often they would report a sense that in you know in their their upward in their destination milieu um, perhaps sort of publicly expressing tastes for exactly some of the comedians you were talking about, people like Roy Chubby Brown, um, Jim Davidson. These were seen as a sort of huge sort of faux pas in, uh, in, in these sort of social worlds. Um, uh, and similarly, going home, um, expressing or struggling with um, some of the uh, comedy tastes uh, and forms of humour that were expressed um, uh, by their families that had 
and still were a very important part of how the family operated and how they made connections with each other, um, put them in this weird liminal space where they felt sort of um, as if they sort of had one foot in both camps, but somehow uh, not really at home in either. And so I sort of coined this term cultural homelessness to describe that state. Uh, and I think in, 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 in sort of homing in on that feeling of cultural homelessness, it really does illustrate the power of both of these sort of comic taste cultures, both of how strong these senses of humours are uh, at different ends of the social hierarchy. Because that's one element that comes uh, through the fieldwork you did. The, the other element of the fieldwork is this big survey and the use um, of a particular um, body-influenced method, um, MCA. And I don't want to go too into that because it's quite technical, but I am quite interested in the findings where you talk, um, I think it's at the end, uh, or it's in part two of the book, about the different divisions whereby um, you say that gender doesn't seem to have kind of a big effect on people's comedy tastes. Um, age is important um, in terms of um, sort of dividing up who likes um, particular kinds of, I'd guess, um, emerging or alternative comedy. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, you know, this kind of division between the highbrow comedy consumers who tend to have high forms of cultural capital and are thus associated with being in elite social positions mm -hmm. and those that have these kind of um, lowbrow uh, comedy tastes. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think certainly in terms of gender, this was really interesting because as most um, people will, will be aware, the comedy field in terms of the production uh, of, of humour is incredibly skewed towards men. Um, and as a result, I was expecting to see quite strong differences in what men and women find funny, but, but they weren't there. And that's interesting in and of itself. Um, uh but isn't so much of a focus of the book, but it's something that I think is really worth following up on. Um, in terms of age, I think it was really interesting to see that um, the sort of age um, relationship in the quantitative analysis very much dovetails with the history of, of comedy. And so um, what you found was that highbrow tastes for comedy, i.e., sort of taking in taste for alternative comedy, the sorts of intellectual, surreal, uh, abstract forms of comedy that have developed in the field since the no early 1980s and the alternative comedy movement were from the sort of 18 to 45 um, age group. And what you had among older generations, for instance, was a strong connection whereby those from low cultural capital backgrounds who were older tended to like some of the more what we would call trad comedians, people like Bernard Manning uh, and the sort of um, uh, working men's club style comedy. Um, but for those from high cultural capital backgrounds, there was just a lack of interest in comedy. And I think that very much reflects the fact that for, for the upper middle classes, sort of pre-alternative pre, um, pre comedy, the stand-up was just not really on people's radar. Um, but as you say, the, the largest sort of um, connection in terms of people's comedy tastes um, was this this um, separation between those generally with high levels of cultural capital tended to prefer a set of um, sort of critically acclaimed 
comedians, um, we see them as highbrow because they are legitimated by these uh, intermediaries like uh, comedy critics, people like Stuart Lee, uh, Chris Morris, Armando Iannucci, um, uh, versus, um, on the other end, much less critically acclaimed comedians, um, people like, as I've spoken about before, Roy Chubby Brown, Jim Davidson, even people like Michael McIntyre as well. Uh, that's one of the things that's, that's really kind of great about the book, actually, is um, it's it sort of um, neatly bookended by uh, a brief sort of tour of the history of British comedy, and you focus in on that 1980s period as being crucial in marking um, the kind of, uh, I guess, the moment where comedy becomes legitimate, um, and this is bound up with lots of different social changes in British society. Um, and you see this in, in your surveys, but also you tell us not just kind of um, who is important and uh, you know what their kind of you know particular moment in time is, but towards the end of the book you talk about I guess the structure of the field about mm-hmm. how comedy functions. So it's not just a matter of um, how comedy is uh, consumed and what people find funny, but you're very aware of the idea of comedy being um, you know an industry. Uh, a business um, that is structured by both um, critics but also important cultural intermediaries. And I wonder if you could say what the relationship is between that end of the book where you're talking about uh, how the critics function uh, to kind of police boundaries of taste and how uh, comedy scouts who are you know, looking for people who might be funny to give them gigs, etc., uh, work and the relationship with consumption. Yeah, I mean... Uh, for me, this is this was really important because I think one of the things that people get very angry with, and rightly so, is this notion that um, we characterise some things as uh, as highbrow and some things as lowbrow. But we don't really understand. We don't. That sort of um, leaves a, a, a problematic residue of normative judgment about quality. Uh, and I suppose what I tried to do in the book is explain the fact that the reason why we can um, conceptualise those comedians that were associated with those with high cultural capital as highbrow is that they have been um, legitimated very clearly by both comedy academics but, but more so by comedy critics, by people actively shaping taste in the field um, who have not just acclaimed certain objects, certain artists, but also really interestingly through their discourse. Um, communicated certain aesthetic standards. They have communicated a certain sense of humour, um, uh, a certain uh, uh, and communicated that that sense of humour is uh, more legitimate than other forms of humour through the way they write about comedy. And I was trying to show the connections between the sense of humour of critics and the sense of humour of my high cultural capital respondents. Um, at the same time. Um, you know, the Edinburgh Festival Fringe is fascinating because it is essentially uh, a massive trade fair for the comedy industry. Um, and what is particularly interesting there is that you see the way in which um, comedians are propelled from complete obscurity uh, into very prominent positions in uh, TV, radio, live tours, etc. Um, and so I did an ethnography with... Um, uh, a set of comedy scouts uh, and try to understand um, why some people were being selected um, 
and propelled and others weren't. Um, and what was really interesting about this to connect it with the, with this idea of consumption um, was, I mean, first and foremost, that these uh, comedy scouts were almost all from uh, privileged high cultural capital backgrounds. Um, and as a result, again, were responsible, in my mind, in the way that they made selections in reifying these boundaries between what was legitimate and what they imagined the audiences um, to be for certain types of comedians uh, and often made those sorts of judgments. So depending on their position in the field and who they were scouting for, they would connect um, outlets that they knew were um, perhaps more... Um, geared towards mass market audiences or with people with um, lower cultural capital profiles uh, and they would be actively looking for uh, comedy that they saw as being less legitimate uh, to put into those channels or more safe or inoffensive um, uh, whereas um, they very much connected um, the taste that they had themselves um, for this more sort of highbrow alternative um, abstract comedy and directed it to channels like um, small comedy clubs, um, niche comedy programs um, that again sort of reified the connection between particular forms of comedy and particular audiences. And so it, the book's about trying to connect um, both these forms of taste makers with the actual taste divisions that we find. I have two questions as, as we come to a, a bit of a conclusion. One, I guess, is we talked a, a lot specifically about how this all functions in the UK. Yeah. Um, have you got any comments on you know how this transfers internationally? You know, are there similar things in the states or in continental Europe or? you know, in um, somewhere like Brazil or in Australia or, mm. um, or is that something that uh, in the classic kind of academic comment uh, needs further research? Yeah. Um, I think it's really interesting um, and I've presented this work in various countries and what's interesting is you go to some places where people really get it um, and there's some places where you get lots of blank stares. Um, is that to do with the idea of some places are, you know, very wedded to that, but comedy is just what makes you laugh. I think it's about the strength and the level of sophistication of the comedy industry in different countries. Oh, that's really interesting. It's very... Um, so it's not a class structure thing, it's to do with, with the field? I think it's... I think, it, I, I think it's... There's, I mean, Britain has a highly developed and very long history of comedy as an art form. Which is all in, in the first couple of chapters. Yes, of yeah. Um, interestingly, and I've done some cross-cultural research in the Netherlands, um, uh, the Netherlands has a similar culture, and interestingly, um, a colleague, Hiselende Koipers, and I have shown that actually um, there are very similar taste divisions related to class in the Netherlands. Um, and it's a, it's a similarly sort of um, complex field of different styles. I think anecdotally, um, from talking to academics from other parts of continental Europe, like France and Germany, the field is less developed and comedy is still stuck in that moment um, that it would have been in Borges era, which is just as a sort of invariant lowbrow art form and therefore not 
um, an area where the upper middle classes see as a sort of uh, potential arena for communicating cultural distinction. Um, there's just not enough formal innovation or, or, or what they would consider sophistication. Interestingly, um, comedy is is obviously a, a very large industry in in, the, in, in Australia and mm. in the US, um, and um, I do think it would be really interesting for this sort of research to be carried out in both of those contexts to see if similar divisions apply. I would imagine that, that they probably do to some extent. I, I guess the last question about the book before we move on to your sort of future plans is, is really about why it matters. Um, you know, one of the things you identify really kind of well in the text is this idea that different social groups have different um, types of tastes. They have almost kind of different types of humour. But in some ways, that, you know, might not bother us. Um, you know, if different social groups laugh at different things, you know, it might tell us that uh, humour is not a universal thing. But equally, why should it be something that um, is the, you know, the concern and, and a battleground for sociologists? Yeah, I mean, I suppose there's, there's sort of two... I mean, it's a question I, I ask myself a lot. Uh, who cares, essentially? Yeah. Um, we, we ask all of ourselves. <laughs> yes, of course. Uh, I think it's a very important question to ask, and um, and it, uh, I suppose my answer is is twofold, really. I think I suppose the first one is this idea that for me, um, um, it's really important that as sociologists we don't misunderstand um, the contemporary consumption of popular culture, particularly among. Um, the middle classes, which I think is is a sort of empirical phenomenon that basically nobody disputes and everybody understands as being a trend that has increased um, towards the end of the 20th and into the 21st century. Uh, and I suppose for me, the thing that matters here is to try and show that this is not about um, a, a move towards, or in the, certainly in the case of comedy, a, a move towards uh, cultural tolerance, openness, um, and actually... Um, the, the sort of forces of cultural capital um, that structure, and Borgesio very clearly structured um, sort of class divisions in wider society are still very much functioning in the consumption of popular culture. Um, and I suppose um, to sort of jump forward to the question of what I've been doing uh, in the last couple of years, I'm currently editing a special issue of the journal Poetics where we are bringing together papers on street art, on beauty, um, even looking at things like hipster subculture to show that actually there are um, new forms of cultural distinction that are being um, sort of um, cultivated in various fields of popular culture, not just comedy. And so I suppose the answer there in terms of your question is that um, for me comedy in that sense is a case study of the importance of this idea of embodied cultural capital as a sort of vehicle towards um, cultural distinction, and then and then I think this, the second point is is just this idea of of, of snobbery and the fact that uh, comedy seems to be particularly sort of um, have a particular have a unique boundary drawing power, which I think is as I argue, related somewhat to the role that humour plays in marking out similarity and difference in social life more generally. And I do think that's powerful because um, I think snobbery, 
uh, boundary drawing is is very powerful as a sort of uh, as a way in which people police the boundaries um, of class and general cultural identity. Yeah, so it's it's not just a matter of sort of particular social groups being symbolically violent to others, but I guess going on what you said that comedy is a route in to help us understand how it is that the poor stay poor and the rich seem to stay rich. Yes, um, which is a really kind of um, interesting point to to end up with when you start off with this really basic question of what's funny. Yeah. Um, you mentioned poetics, uh, and especially the issue, is that out next year? Then? Yeah, that'll be out next year. Um, and what other stuff are you, are you currently working on? Are you doing more comedy stuff then, or are you, you know, going in completely different directions? No, it's interesting, the section where we talked about the work on the shifting cultural identities of the socially mobile, um, if there's a link to more recent work, it's there. Um, and what I've been doing over the last couple of years is really probing um, this idea that when people experience social mobility both upward and downward um, whilst political discourse would tell us that this is a sort of wonderful panacea for society's ills it's a marker of a just and open and meritocratic society um, I'm really interested in how people actually experience those trajectories, how it shifts their sense of self, um, how it affects their relationships with people from their origin and their destination, um, and whether there are, and I think I've shown in some recent work, that there are significant sort of hidden injuries to that process, even though often these people are, are sort of heralded in society as... As, as, as the sort of heroes to some extent of the type of meritocratic society we want to live in and I suppose the sort of wider point here is showing that when you have high levels of inequality the journeys that people have to actually um, follow in order to be meaningfully socially mobile um, become increasingly longer and there and I think as I show potentially more traumatic um, so there's a wider point about um, looking at the experience of social mobility and seeing it as a sort of wider critique of uh, rising levels of inequality. Thanks for listening to New Books and Critical Theory, where we were discussing comedy and distinction, the cultural currency of a good sense of humour, with Dr Sam Friedman from the London School of Economics. I've been your host, Dr David O'Brien from Goldsmiths College, the University of London.